Hello and welcome back to the Stadio podcast. I'm Isak Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hun. How are you, Ryan? How are you? <laughs> How do you think I am? Oh God, <laughs> probably less hungover than I am. I'm not. not I'm not really hungover. I'm just uh, a bit tired. So it was my 40th birthday party this weekend, and I was surprised by you, you and dozens of others. It was an amazing event. Uh, I think that I'm now paying the tax on pleasure, though. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Twelve for that, mate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, not too old for the drinking, but definitely a bit old for the recovery. So, yeah. That's what happens, isn't it? When you get to the end of your career, it's the recovery that <laughs> the glass jaw, trouble. The jaw becomes more glass. <laughs> no, it's very nice. So there was a very nice uh, cafe in the, the north of Berlin and some friends, including you, obviously helped organise this amazing surprise party. They've been planned since May. Apparently some, so, yeah. My friends have walked around lying to my face for half a year you just kept saying at various points of the evening i can't trust any of you ever again i can't i can't it's like a conspiracy theory i'm gonna be like so uh, funny tinfoil hat on but yeah no it was an amazing event it was really good yeah lots of cake lots of oh my goodness you're in your happy place People, was, you had your little gold paper crown on yeah and a, some, a friend actually made me a box of shout out to my friend jennifer neal made me a box of who also organized the party a box of caramel chocolate brownies with almonds which I've already begun working my way through. Before we get going, can we do some admin quick? Yep, sure. If anyone's listening on Apple Podcasts, please can you give us a rating and a review? It kind of really helps us grow the podcast. Thanks to everyone who's left really kind reviews so far. Also, anyone who hasn't received Stadio Tees but ordered them, they should be with you soon. We've got ours on the weekend. And they look amazing. They look pretty fresh, don't they? I've got the yellow one with the sort of purple logo, which yeah. is a standout. Nice. And a few people have been asking about the theme tune. So just so we don't have to keep responding to everyone tweeting, basically... Sorry to let you all down, but I did it. You did it. You made it. Yeah, basically. We oh, had so to do this on the cheap. So you produce music. Sorry, so it's, a, it's another sort of look can you, the curtain. Can you, can you not? <laughs> People are going to find out who you are one day. They'll be like, Humble, oh my God. shy poet, my ass. <laughs> Musa Gonga. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. Um, We're very yeah, delicate today, aren't we? I'm very delicate. I'm, oh my goodness. This is the hangover part four. It is. This is the hangover. We're going to call it that, aren't we? The hangover part four, this podcast. Yeah. yeah Musa's has got a pet tiger and a terrible face tattoo after the weekend <laughs> a thousand stories will remain untold from that evening and there's been a thousand games of football as well in the last week it feels like yeah i mean i was talking to a friend about this uh jonathan harding has been on the podcast before he was integral into your surprise party by the way he, he was, was he was he was the person who was the decoy so jonathan some of you may know jonathan from his work on german football and his brilliant book mensch which you can pick up Online now from Ockley Books and I think other good bookstores. Thoroughly recommended. Yeah, superb book. And Jonathan was saying how sometimes he felt there was just too much football. And if you look at the contrast to that, you know, all those players who've had a summer off, someone like Robert Lewandowski, who scored a superb hat-trick in the qualifiers uh, Mm. for Poland as they beat Latvia 3-0. And Lewandowski is in arguably the form of his life, form of his career. And Jonathan was like, yeah, it's all because he's had a summer off. That's what happens. Rest is important. It is. And you, you look, look at how football's broken Lexi Sanchez. Well, I'm glad you mentioned him as, as exactly the name I was going to mention. Oh, yeah, sorry. No, no, it's fine. No, no it's back- rice playing you. No, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> sanchez splaining. You know, back-to-back Copa America titles, perhaps the finest period of football in Chile's history, arguably. Yeah. Uh, beating Argentina twice. And Sanchez was integral to that. And his game is so high intensity that I almost... The, the rest that he eventually got was a blessing, but I think it came two summers too late. There was a thing, wasn't there, recently where they looked at players and it wasn't... Like nowadays with with so much technology and 
information and research and nutrition and performance analysis and all this kind of stuff. How maybe age isn't really the factor anymore. It's almost like miles on the clock. Absolutely. You look at players like Fabregas and Rooney, you know, Suarez to a certain degree, how players have started to, who have come through super early and have played a hell of a lot of football and how some of them tail off a little bit early just because they are kind of knackered. Well, it's funny you should mention that in a different context, uh, talking about LeBron James and basketball. Mm. And they say that he spends, what, three million on his body a year. Yeah. All the conditioning coaches, he's basically harnessing the greatest amount of sports science. Now LeBron makes more money than even, the, yeah. the, 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 he actually makes far more money than even the best paid footballers. So that's a thing he can afford to do. That's an enterprise he can afford to undertake. And the, the average highly paid player I just don't think there's the same culture of preservation. Not, not to say the football's behind basketball. Actually, no, let me go there. I think, I think basketball will, I think basketball is the most advanced in terms of maximization of sports science, if that makes sense. I just see so yeah, much. I mean, maybe. I, yeah. no, there's no offense to, to football. I mean, the conditioning is incredible. Maybe perhaps because of the nature of basketball um, as a sport that you're required to do things on both ends of the court. And the burnout is a really is really something to look at because you look at players like Torres, Shevchenko, we've mentioned before, yeah. I think, where they just drop off after thirty um, in terms of their intensity. Marcelo, to an extent, now as well is now struggling, and it's not so much that he's technically poor because he'll never be poor, but Marcelo's been up and down that flank for rail for what almost a decade now. But then I suppose you see players like Iniesta, who you know pushed on to what 33, yeah. 34 at Barcelona before moving on. He played a lot of football, but I think those guys were. The game's based on something different there, isn't it? Yeah, and I suppose Messi's probably the anomaly there as well because he's played a hell of a lot of football, but also he's done a hell of a lot of walking. So <laughs> Yeah, Messi, that, that whole stuff about how Messi walks most of the time. Yeah. yeah. Was there, do you remember that one, there was one game a few years ago where Pinto had covered more distance in a game than Messi? I can't remember who it was against. I think it was a Champions League game. It's one of my favourite stats, that. I love that so much. When you're that good at seeing the game, there's so much running you don't have You can to let do. him walk. Yeah, yeah, of course, of he course. He can walk. Yeah. But, um... Kind of waffling a bit. What are we doing? We're we talking about anything today. <laughs> yeah, we are. Let's get into maybe some of the questions. Yeah, so we, because back. we didn't want to go through all of the international qualifiers this week, because A, some people might be listening to this on a different day and you know, there's games every day. And also, you know, some of them are kind of dry, if we're being honest. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't. Too, there was, I mean, when Belgium are beating San Marino 9-0, you kind of feel, well, uh, what can I really say about that? And also, the, I think there was some... This it's really hard to draw massive conclusions from any of this stuff because you play two games, then you're gone again. And it might be different next time. I suppose just on that note, quickly, while we're international, just shout out quickly to Italy who've qualified for the Euros now. Yeah, and actually maybe Czech Republic as well, because that was the first time England have lost a qualifier for a decade, is it now? Which is wild as a stat. I saw that stat and I thought, that is absolutely... That, it just goes to show that the quality of opposition England have had in the qualifiers has just not been particularly good. Yeah, yeah. And weirdly, I can't really get too stressed or concerned about that result because I think a bloody nose is helpful. It sounds really, really disrespectful and kind of blasé, but not a lot of this matters to quite a lot of the teams there because they're going to qualify. Right. It reminds me of those World Cup groups where three of the four teams go through yeah. the next round. are just like, what was the point of that? You know? Going <laughs> <laughs> to save everyone's time. Yeah. But also, you know, England have breezed through qualifying campaigns before and got to a tournament and just struggled massively. So things like this happen. They're playing Bulgaria we're recording this ahead of the Bulgaria game. It's actually something we're going to talk about in a bit related to that game. Tammy Abraham talking about the possibility of England maybe walking off if there's racist chants. 
yeah. or racist abuse. And there was an article by Howard Gale that went up on The Guardian that we read that we were going to kind of maybe cover. Yeah. Because there was a question about that as well, actually. But maybe let's dive into the questions. Yeah, sure. Go for it. Yeah. So the first one from our good friend, Justin Salhani. Hey, Mr. Gorilla. Just Rocky. moved to Paris. He has. Yeah. He has. He's having a lovely time. There's a ladybug behind you flying around. Can smell your vulnerability. <laughs> <laughs> Which league is surprising you the most at the moment and are Ribery's performances and maybe Fiorentina's as a whole the most surprising for a player slash team? It's a good question. Really good question. I wouldn't say that a league is... Oh, the German league actually surprised me most by a distance. The Bundesliga is remarkable. So mention Gladbach at top. I actually need to correct myself because I think I said last week that they were at the top for the first time in 35 years, which is completely done true. Right. But they're on a, I think something like their best start to the season for that long. Right. That's where I got that mixed up. Apologies. Not to worry, sir. Not to worry. Um, mention Gladbach at top. Bayern, I think have lost twice now. Uh, Dortmund, not struggling, but all those teams that we expected to have started at a high intensity have not necessarily done so. Mm, yeah, Bayern have only lost once still. They, sorry. Saw, they drew twice. Sorry, drew twice. My, yeah, po- yeah. my no, apologies. My apologies. So, yeah, the German league certainly by far the most surprising. I still think that Bayern, Leipzig and Dortmund in that order will be the the top three end of the season. Oh, really? Yeah. I just think that Bayern bringing in Coutinho and Perisic was the game changer. If they hadn't strengthened in those key areas, then I would have tipped Leipzig to take it. But I think Bayern just have too much firepower now. Yeah. Um, and in terms of Fiorentina and Ribery, that's the classic example of the rebirth of a player. Going to a league where, you know, going to a town, let's give Florence a shout out. What a gorgeous town to be in. I mean, that's a power move from from Franck. It's amazing. What a great place to have your sort of house in years, your, you know, your sort of closing. You're a Riva Dirtry. Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't necessarily surprise me how well he or Fiorentina have been doing because it's such a natural fit for them. And, they haven't had a player like that, I think, for a while. I mean, they are only eighth, but they've won three on the bounce in the league. So, right. I mean, form-wise, they're doing great. It reminds me of Decania at Napoli, actually, that kind of a team where they have a, a talented soloist just leading them forward mm. and beating teams that you might not expect them to beat. And I think that fourth spot for the Champions League in Serie A is really up for grabs this season. There's only three points separating... Napoli in fourth with Torino in ninth. Still tip Napoli for that though. I mean you would you know, do yeah. but also you've got Roma in there as well. You know Roma are fifth you know Atalanta are third currently you know they got in the Champions League last season Yeah I mean it's interesting below I think it's going to be Juve into shoot out for the title Right. Um, Juve beating Inter in the in the derby d'Italia last weekend And actually shout out to Conte who just has this ability to step into any club with the pieces he's given and assemble a threatening outfit. Mm. That really is his MO, isn't it? That's his style. Yeah, definitely. I'd go with you on the Bundesliga though, I think. I think in terms of the start of the season, if anyone had said after seven games that Gladbach would be top, you know, not a lot of people would take you seriously for that. You know, I mean, Wolfsburg are the only unbeaten side in the league. I was going to, that's wild. That that team, Wolfsburg is playing a 4-3-3 and they are, notably resilient so mm. you've got clubs like that who are really offering a challenge and they're also going to win this year but they'll be perhaps pivotal in terms of that they might take points off bigger teams yeah and david wagner as well doing a really good job at schalke yeah, brilliant you job know, at schalke. i mean they really struggled last season which was surprising because tedesco took them to the champions league 
you know, they're sixth. They're scoring goals. They're conceding one a game. Right. And it's super, super tight in the Bundesliga. Six points between Gladbach in first and Hertha in tenth. So the whole top half of the Bundesliga is separated by five points because Eintracht are in ninth. What a great question that was. Yeah. And there's, yeah, yeah. So thanks, Justin. We have, a, we have great questions on this. We do. We do. We're very lucky. We're very lucky. Moving on to the Premier League. Yep. Question from Ian Woodburn. Should more of the top teams in the Premier League be looking to take a chance signing the best players from the Scottish Premiership to avoid excessive transfer costs? For example, Tierney for 25 million, the highest amount so far. McGinn was bought for 2.75 million. I have a little theory on this, but I'll let you go first. That is a really great question. I think the challenge with that is really got to be careful with the scouting. I look at the Scottish League a bit like I look at the Dutch League a few years ago, where you'd bring in. Uh, let's say Ruud van Nistelrooy and that signing would work but then you might bring in Matteo Kesman and Was that a little shout for your pal Ruud van Nistelrooy? Of course he was on my mind at the moment um, you look at that and you think there's a variable quality in the Scottish Premier League and you can't quite tell I think the helpful thing with a lot of those players that are coming in have been tried and tested in Europe so I would qualify I said Ian that's a great question but I think the, the key is really are those players performing well in Europe because if they perform in the Scottish Premier League it's hard to tell exactly just how high their ceiling is if that's fair yeah that makes sense so yeah so Scott I would say yes it's a great that's a great idea I would say simply qualified by Scottish Premier League players who have excelled in European League or Champions League yeah the financial inequality across a lot of leagues I think forces certain clubs even of the size of Celtic to rethink how they do stuff yeah you saw it with Ajax prime example before their crazy Champions League run, they were turning over less than Burnley, you know? And they may still be, actually. Which, if you th- they were actually turning over less than some clubs that had been relegated to the Championship in, in England. You know, it's kind of like a creative process when you don't have infinite tools at your disposal, like in terms of equipment or whatever, whatever it is, you, how you do your job. You're forced to think with what you have. Right. And actually, sometimes the outcome of that can be better than if you did have all the tools. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So, so, sorry yeah. to, but for example, one of the yeah. things that Arsene Wenger said a few years ago was about the wave of South American strikers that were coming through because they weren't, they hadn't come up through traditional academy systems. So a lot of players had become homogenized in terms of their skill set because they'd all been through the same process. So the fact that a lot of South American players hadn't and they'd come up playing essentially street football a lot of the time or playing football in far less professional facilities like in terms of pitches and stuff like that. Messi was a prime example before he went to Barcelona. The pitches he would play, he was playing on in Argentina were horrendous. So I wonder if even of a club the size of Celtic, they've had to rethink in order because they are so far out in front in, in Scotland. And maybe that difference of thinking the same way that Ajax, their difference in thinking and the rebuilding of the academy and all this kind of stuff changing the process to to try and maximize what you have with so little whereas a lot of clubs just have such infinite resources i think can create a different skill set or a different kind of player actually that's a great point and i want to sort of throw in as well something i might have mentioned before but there's a great follow on twitter a guy called mark cooper his twitter handle is mark o cooper the oracle yeah and he wrote a superb paper on celtic's transfer strategy and what it should be and he suggested modelling it on Porto and Udinese, so bringing in players yeah. and flipping them after two to three years. Which they did. They did as well. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, Porto and Udinese, I think Porto perhaps the greatest example of that because in their transfer budget in the course of 10 years, was the profit was over a billion euros. I think just from Atleti and Monaco, 
those couple of years, yeah, I think Porto made an absolute fortune. Porto did really well. And I look at the leading strikers now in the world. You look at them, Mane, where did he come through? He came through Salzburg. Obviously, you look at someone like Sergio Aguero, came from Independiente. No, Independiente is a big club, don't get me wrong, but really those clubs that signed them are rewarded for looking outside traditional structures, mm. looking for players that had to solve problems in unconventional fashion, players who were adapted from certain positions. So of course, Aguero was always a striker, but if you look at Independiente days, this is a guy that picked the ball up very deep, very far from goal. Yeah, He wasn't just someone who he slotted in as a, you know, it wasn't like he was a nine from the age of 10 years old. And I was talking to another friend recently and saying how, you know, it's funny because in different cultures and clubs, you get a specialist position very late in your life. When you start off, a lot of clubs, I think in the Dutch system as well, you don't really have a set position. You start off and you're sort of playing around and then get to 15. You could be playing a left back, centre back, mm. striker. And by the time you get to 18, you've got this great vision and this understanding of all the positions. So by the time you finally specialise, you have a footballing intelligence. So there's something to be said for signing players who've been brought up in, yeah, less conventional backgrounds. Mm. And you've got a broader, I think, footballing intelligence or education as a result. This is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but it's a similar kind of thing that you were saying or it reminded me of something. So Brian Epstein and Malcolm Gladwell did a talk I've not seen Sloan. it. I think you can watch it on YouTube. And it's really interesting because actually they met because they um Brian Epstein essentially blew apart Malcolm Gladwell's ten thousand hour theory. <laughs> right. And then Gladwell changed his mind because right. of the argument that Epstein produced or presented. Epstein was talking about specialization in young athletes and actually how I think the research now is suggesting that the later you specialize it's almost like the better you become at your individual sport when you when you choose it. Makes complete sense. And it's quite interesting because it was something that Jonathan Harding and I were kind of chatting about at your party, actually, just outside. We were talking about how, you know, clubs are professionalizing kids from the age of nine. You know, there's some really famous instances, especially in the US, or, you know, you look at someone like, I think it might have even been Yanis Antetokounmpo, last year's MVP in the NBA. I think he played football till he was 15 and played basketball as well, but then all of a sudden grew like... <laughs> he's, a, he's a tall dude he's, seven, he's like seven feet right big guy it was something as well I might be remembering this incorrectly but it was also it had a positive effect on in terms of the frequency of severe inju- injuries so the later that you specialise at a certain sport the less likely you are to suffer freak injuries so stuff like severe you know ruptures and stuff like that because your body is more geared towards random movements that you may make in that sport because you've, right. you've used those muscles or those pressure points whilst doing other sports. Makes complete sense, yeah. Super interesting. So actually, maybe clubs should be completely rethinking their whole structure and actually professionalising kids later than signing them up and professionalising them from the age of eight or nine years well, old. Well, I agree. Our best, our best striker at the football club I play for is outstanding at handball. And, you know, obviously, handball requires different skill sets to football. But the one thing that handball gives you, I think perhaps even better than football, is an awareness of exploiting space at a very high speed. Handball is constantly about finding positions, gaps, pockets. And that's what this guy, you know, our striker, William, that's what he excels at. So yeah, absolutely. Big Germany handball. Yeah, very big, very big here. Very big. That's a good question, that. Yeah, great. It kind of led us down a, an interesting path. Love that. But anyway, we're going south of the border again. High Life Carter. What three English midfielders would you guys pick to be a mainstay in the national team for the next five years? 
I'm going to throw in a, an add-on to that and say 10 as well. So we'll Harry, do five. Winks. Harry Winks popped into my head. Yeah, same. Popped, the first name in my the Henderson head was, role. Yeah, first name in my head was Harry Winks. And I just think because he has that upside, the ability to move the ball on through midfield at high tempo, smart passing, screening. Yeah, he was, God, that's so strange. He was literally the first, the first name in my head. Harry Winks is the deepest yep. deep line playmaker. Absolutely, yep, yep, yep. So who are the eights? This is where it gets a bit tricky, I think. It does, because that's, I think, England's weakness. It's a healthy Oxlade-Chamberlain I'd put there. Yeah, but five years. Chamberlain's 26 now. So five years takes him to 31 with yeah. his injury record. I would still say Harry Winks, Oxlade-Chamberlain. And... Foden? Wow, I like that. I actually would have Deli Ali there, to be honest. Oh, Deli Ali, I hadn't thought of that, actually. I think Deli Ali is an eight. Of course. So I would say, how about this? Winks, Oxlade, Deli Ali is the, is the starting three. Yeah, definitely. I love I think, I think that could, I think that could, I mean, actually, I, I think Foden would probably be one of the front three more. I love Foden as an eight, actually. I think that on current, just in terms of the game time, Foden would emerge as, would emerge in an ideal world as the best of all of those. I wish he was playing, man. Exactly that. And that's my issue. It's because he's not playing. I haven't put him as my automatic three. I know Oxley's been an out, but I can see a path for Oxley to play more. I can see a clearer path for Oxley to play than I can see for Foden at the moment. That worries me. Do you I, think I fear that, for his career, to be honest. Not his career, but his development. Do you think that in terms of control, that gives you enough? Oh God, yes. I think in terms of the technical ability, because I think when you're going to choose eights now if you look at the the modern eight and the skill set what they do mm. Guardiola's use of David Silva has revolutionised that position yeah definitely if somebody had said to and you De Bruyne actually De Bruyne I think yes De Bruyne was more he doesn't look like the eight that you had sort of 10 years ago with Lampard there and he's not kind of like an Iniesta or at that kind of number eight either he's a tall tall guy yeah, yeah. He's a, and, he's a strange build, actually, for someone who plays in his position, I think, De Bruyne. Well, that's, and again, that's, that is credit to Guardiola in terms of his influence on the game. His use of De Bruyne and Silva as two eights when it first happened was, that's not going to work. And it... <laughs> it oh, how it wrong we game. were. It changed the game. So when I say Deli Ali is an eight, I also think that Guardiola would play Deli Ali somewhere that. I think that when he's that high up the pitch, I think he's actually wasted, mm. to be honest with you. So, yeah. I, my, my three, Oxlade, Ali and Winks. I actually think that midfield is, there's an emerging generation of midfielders for England, which is... Maitland-Niles as well at some point? Uh, that's a tricky one. His development again. Is I think two or three years ago, I would have said definitely. Because when Ainsley Maitland-Niles first came through, he was playing a lot of dead rubber European games and mm. League Cup games and stuff. And he was playing centre midfield and he was brilliant. He's not a right back at all, as no, we, no, as we not, know. Um, but he's come out and said that his favourite position or his preferred position is, is right wing. And I don't think he's a right winger, really. I think his skill set, when he first came through, he was so good in centre midfield. But yeah, I don't think he's, an, I don't think he's a, a definite England regular. If we're going to be Pete Guardiola, we'd have Ali and Foden as the eights. If we're really going to go there and look for pure technical control and one-touch passing and movement, it's Winks, Ali, Foden. And, and Winks... Even though he's not the tallest guy, he's you know he's got some bite to him as well. So yeah. it's not. I don't think that's a lightweight midfield either. Not at all, actually, because you know Ali's spiky. Yeah, and um, you know Foden's not not pushover. Um, should we take a quick break and then come back with some more questions? Yeah, let's do it. Let's and do can it. I just say before we go to the break, 
These are superb questions. Lovely. It's really fun, huh? I yeah. like doing the mailbag stuff. You know what I love about the questions? You're working things out in your own mind that you may not have thought or said before. So it really puts you on the spot in a really positive way. To Lovely. use a phrase from the great Musa Wonga, you're seeing players make decisions in real time. Oh, yes. And now to the break. <laughs> Okay, back from the break. That sounded so cheesy. Okay, listeners, we're back from the break. That's really good. Keep those both in. We're going to keep that yeah, in. Yeah, keep both in. It wouldn't be a mailbag without a question about Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. Oh, God. Here we go. This is from Tom Woodhead. Has Oli done anything in his managerial career to suggest he can turn United around? No. No, because this is an unprecedented situation for a Manchester United manager in the modern era where you've got rid of a primary goal scorer. It's not immediately clear where the goal's coming from midfield and in the attack. It's not clear where the control is coming from midfield and it's a slow free fall. Very few managers in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's defence could revitalise a club in that position. And I suspect that it will take a new manager to do what has to be done. I don't think it's just a manager though. It's not. But if you brought in one or two managers who are different, it would change things, I think, overnight. Bring Mourinho back, man. <laughs> We'd definitely go down if that happened. He'd just go to war on everything. <laughs> uh, we actually had a question on Mourinho from uh, Cheeky Ball Boys. Is Mourinho a better fit for international football management now? Knockout master, less time with the players to crush their souls, etc. <laughs> <laughs> Great shout. I, I think, it's, I think that's, that's a, a brilliant good shout. shout. And he would take a team, he would take a team with a bit of the chip on their shoulder to real heights. So yeah, Mourinho playing in charge of a country, but perhaps a second tier country in terms of quality. And they would just start drilling people. The natural place for him at international level would be Portugal. I can't see Fernando Santos getting... I think Mourinho at somewhere like Romania. 4-4-1-1. Four, four, one, one, solid bank of four. Effervescent playmaker. Lethal striker. Actually, you know what? Mourinho managing Poland. Because he'd give me extra 20%. He'd be like, look at how they look at Poland. They laugh at you. You're great. You're great. You came third in the, the World Cup 1986. And he'd say, they're laughing at Poland as a country. He'd build up this real nationalist element. <laughs> he would. He'd really, it's us against Europe. It's us against the world. Oh and my they, goodness. Yeah, they'd be drilling people. Yeah. Do you know who I think he's going to take over? Because there was a rumour that he not backed the Leon job. Okay. Oh, wow. Because he was imminently taking another job. Who is a major European football power who are underperforming currently? Very close to where you're sat right now. Herter. International level. Oh, sorry. International level. No, not these guys. Not Germany. He's learning German. That would be extraordinary. I literally just thought of it because of the international link and you telling me that he was learning German. You've said it on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Mourinho to Germany would be mind-blowing. I think for entertainment value, it would be, I'd just be like, take my money, take everything I have, empty my bank account, which isn't a lot, but take it all. I think it would be kind of hilarious. Oh my goodness. Do you know what this has got me thinking now? This is amazing. Because he's not going to take the Bayern. I don't think he's going to Bayern. Do you know why it's perfect, actually, Mourinho to Germany? Because you know who he'd pick a fight with first, of course. Manuel Neuer. Of course. Of course. Oh my God. This is like, we both knew it. He'd pick a fight with, with Manuel. He always, will, he always destroys one person. He'll destroy an icon. It'd be Neuer. So Mourinho probably, deep down, is super angry about the way that 
Ozil got treated at the World Cup or something like that. Do you know what I mean? This is the kind of thing that would... Oh my God, this is the levels. You could do a PhD on this. Mourinho would basically pick a fight with Anoia first, probably in the opening press conference. And then he'd, he'd fly, bring back... He'd fly to see Ozil. He'd go there. He'd bring back all of the... He'd bring back like Hummels, Boateng, but Muller and Ozil back in the squad. Just He might not even play them, but he'd bring them back. Yeah. Would he bring Muller back though? Probably. Actually, that's interesting. And then, he, But then he'd pick a fight with someone coming through who's really good, which would be really unpopular. Do you so know it's going to be? It might be Kai Havertz. Havertz. Yeah. Havertz, yeah. Oh my God, we both knew yeah. it. It's Kai Havertz. We know it. Because we understand the psychology. We understand Mourinho's psychology. It's the playbook. He'd pick a fight with Havertz, pick a fight with Neuer, and he'd say, Havertz has many great qualities, but he's not the player he thinks he is. Yeah. Havertz is not Thomas Hessler. Havertz has done nothing in the game. Yeah. Show me something Havertz has done. Anyone could do it at Leverkusen, yeah. all that a, kind of nonsense. He said, like, show me something Havertz has done and I'll show you something Muller has done a hundred times. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's happening, man. We know it. God, what a great question. Thanks. Wow, these are, these are next level. We should do more podcasts hungover. My the, brain is almost hurting. The, my brain's reading so much work. It's got so many revs. When your back's really against the wall. Yeah. And your head's really in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you think. This is superb. <laughs> okay, let's do one more question and then yeah. we'll move on to some actual football. Yeah. Well, a quick one from Neil Young. How do you feel international break weekends? Musa fills them by getting extremely drunk. Ha ha ha. Oh, God. <laughs> I can't even deny it. I'm bang to rights. Caught bang to rights. I treated myself to a pizza on Friday. Oh, that's nice. Where from? Pomodorino. Oh, that is it. It's a good pizza spot. I'm tempted afterwards to go there. I haven't done any food references for a while. No, no, I'm tempted to go there afterwards. Um, One more proper question. From at on a sixpence, why has the midfield maestro disappeared from the game? Oh, I don't think... No, I think the midfield maestro is more prominent than ever. I agree. If you look at the pivotal players of the last five years, they've been midfielders. Um, Modric is the obvious example. Bernardo Silva is the difference between Manchester City and Liverpool or has been in the Premier League for the last year and a half. I think midfielders have never been in greater health and I think there's more demands on them than ever before. I agree. Like I think also midfielders don't have that period of rest they once had because when you have playing out from the back like this, the demands on the midfielder to receive and create are greater than ever before because now the entire pitch is somewhere that you play make from. You know, with Barcelona, even you had the concept of resting in possession. Yeah, you don't have that anymore because no. you've got now you've got the high line that teams are playing in order to force the initiative on the attack. The midfield space is ever more congested. Yep, Does that makes sense. So now you've got the evolution of not the box to box, but the touch player, box to box midfielders. Before the one benefit of that, despite the intensity you had physically, was that you had ten yards in front of you. You don't have that anymore. Mm. People see you coming. And that's why you've got players like Foden emerging as dominant playmakers. If someone said to you 20 years ago, Phil Foden will be the prototype midfielder of the future, you said, hell no. I think the midfield maestro actually is maybe the beginning of a cycle of ascendancy. I mean, obviously, I think he's probably referring to more of the, you know, the mercurial number 10. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, that, the role of the number 10 has been collapsed into the, the the 10 and the 6 have been collapsed into the 8, really. So now the... The eight does both jobs. Stealing a basketball reference is like, I think players need to be, they need to be two-way now. Absolutely. So now the most important player in basketball is the wing, where it might have been the centre at a certain point. And actually, stealing another basketball reference from the great man, Greg Popovich, was the most important thing in basketball? Transition D. 
Hey, and look, actually, if you're thinking about it in football now... Transition D, yeah. We call it gegenpressing, don't we? Yeah, I suppose. Not quite. The reason I say that is because transition D is... In basketball, obviously, the key is to stop the opposition because there's such high scoring. No easy buckets. Exactly, exactly. So the, easy, and the easiest buckets in basketball are scored when they break. <laughs> right? from, the, from the corner now, to be honest. Yeah, true, true, true. Shooting. Ben Simmons shot a three. Oh my goodness, And yes. the internet collapsed. I mean, the NBA is going to be so spicy. Start I can't wait. Oh, it's it's week not two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. 22nd. 22nd? I think so. A couple of weeks, yeah. I yeah. cannot wait for the NBA season this year. Me neither. It's going to be but so anyway, spicy. Back to, so, back to football. Back to football. Transition day. That was it. We completely lost our trail of thought. Maybe we should do a terrible basketball podcast as well. We should maybe one day. There's a little segment on it. Okay, so thanks to everyone who sent in questions. And whilst the men's game was on international, the international break, the men's domestic game, Women's Super League was back. Yeah. Main story of the weekend, Chelsea beat Arsenal at King's Meadow to end Arsenal's 100% record at the start of the season. And really just a huge result because Chelsea, the one thing that I was concerned about from their perspective was their red flag of goal threat. I thought they were very, if you see the way they're playing, they're playing a kind of a 4-4-2, I would say, with this fairly rigid midfield diamond, which allows for a superb amount of match control. But my one concern was their attacking. Mm. Bethany England started the season in fantastic form. Yeah. And it was, again, pivotal on the weekend and in fine form, in fine goal-scoring form as well, actually. Mm, definitely. So, yeah, uh, but that's a big loss for Arsenal, a big win for Chelsea. Yeah, and that moves Chelsea up to second, and Manchester City had already beaten Birmingham 3-0 before. Uh, Sunday's fixtures and so they stay top uh, 100% good win record for, good win away for Manchester United at Spurs before we move on to Manchester United though Manchester City are yet to concede a goal this season do you know those late stages of Champions League are going to be really something they really really are because all you know Lyon have I think they got 4-0 win at the weekend yeah Wolfsburg 5-0 over Cologne and just looking brutal yeah I mean there were some big results in the Brown Bundesliga this weekend Hoffenheim beat Bayern Hoffenheim a second behind Wolfsburg. Bayern a third. They've lost twice, two of their six games. Essen have moved up to fourth. They absolutely hammered Jena. I mean, Jena are bottom. Yeah. And they've had some really terrible, terrible results. They lost 7-1 at home to Essen on the weekend. They lost 8-1 at Wolfsburg the game before. Drew with Cologne. Lost away to Frankfurt. Shipped four. Shipped six in Potsdam. And shipped six at home to Hoffenheim. So they are like firmly rooted to the bottom of the league. I would say as well, and just on the Wolfsburg thing, um, what's striking about them this season is the variety of goal scorers. So Gunnar Zdottir has been really impressive and Ava Pajor as well. I think those two. Yeah. Penilla Harder scored on the weekend as well. I mean, standard, standard. Yeah. What's interesting about Gunnar Zdottir and Pajor is they're scoring the early goals. Mm. So they're taking the pressure off Harder. And I think that's always important for a team that's gunning for big things yeah. to have the goal scoring spread around. Going back to the Women's Super League, though, I mean, Man United are up to fourth. Good side. I mean, they looked good against City in the derby. Signed well as well in the summer, to be yeah, fair. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think a lot of the players that they had on their books anyway who stayed were Super League level. Yeah. So they had the, kind of, they had the derby of the newcomers, didn't they, against yeah, the exactly. Spurs? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before we go, I wanted to talk about the Howard Gale article Okay. in The yeah. Guardian. Yeah. So for those who haven't read it, there was a Howard Gale piece in The Guardian in response to Tammy Abraham's words yeah. about potentially walking off the pitch if they hear racial abuse from the crowd in Bulgaria. He thinks he would set the game back if England did walk off and that then he thinks that racism has won. I mean, I disagree. I disagree as well. My gut reaction when I read that was that people are at football games to watch football games, mainly. Right. If they know that they can chant anything they want and the game will still go ahead no matter what. Right. 
in my opinion, that's them winning. Absolutely. So if there was a major, major high-profile case of a game being abandoned during, I feel that that would be less of a victory for them. Yes, because it's it's basically saying us walking off the field forces people to acknowledge these are not yeah these are not acceptable working conditions in which to conduct international football. These are footballers playing to an elite level, producing a superb spectacle. Look at the opera, for example. Imagine there's a black opera singer, and people are going, ooh, ooh monkey, 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 like between, you know, b- between sort of songs or between acts. Mm. People are doing monkey chants. And you go out there and the opera singer is expected to perform. And the person's like, do you know what? My job is not to convince you of my humanity. My job is to provide you with a spectacle. It's to provide paying consumers with a spectacle. And if I feel that these conditions are suboptimal, I'm not providing for you. And this is probably the highlight of your week, months in some cases. Some of you have never been to an international game before. Some of you have never been to it. Let's say the, the opera analogy. Some of you... I've been saving for months to come to this concert. You're all looking forward to it. But for some reason, there's a sufficient percentage of people in this audience that feel it's appropriate to dehumanise me and my place of work. I reject that absolutely. That to me is a much more powerful statement than scoring a hat-trick and beating the bullies, beating the racists. And it's very interesting. The people suggesting these are always exceptionally gifted athletes or musicians. So we have John Barnes saying, you know, fight the races on the pitch, show them on the pitch. Gail, show them on the pitch. That mindset comes from an era where there were a lot fewer black players in the game and the variables are now different right the, 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 the platform that might have been I get Gail's playbook and I'm not even disrespecting him because he did an incredible work and no disrespect to how Gail at all it just strikes me that we fall into the slight trap of beating them on the pitch but what, what, what if you can't what if you're losing you know what if you if you, if you beat racists 4-0 on the pitch you don't defeat racism you're just beating a racist football team or a racist crowd if you look at how Gale now and that essay he has written, I wonder how much contact he has, how much close contact he has with players like Tammy Abraham who talk about football now and say, oh, this is how things are now in football. Because Howard Gale did not play football in the age of social media, where you were permanently on call in terms of what was coming at you. The level of abuse that Sterling took and no one disputes Sterling's resilience. Sterling, let's be honest, let's, let's look as well at Sterling and what he experienced. Sterling, let's not forget, was attacked in the car park Mm. was attacked in the actual car park. So Sterling is somebody who's been attacked in the street. Um, And I I think Sterling as well actually has a similar style, has a similar stance to Gale on this. He doesn't agree with walking off either. But what I will say, and look, whatever the ins and outs of the Gale article are, and I respect his opinion, of course, and I respect his, his stance just in terms of what he's done for the game, because it's astonishing what he's brought for football in terms of, um, you know, his support of black players and as a pioneer. What really gets me is how, unimaginative this space continues to be and how few directors I mean how many times have you seen a football director like a board of how many times have you seen the chairman or even a director at a club like City or Chelsea come out and make a public statement yeah about they don't and this is my issue with it all black players walking off white players walking off hey hang on a minute like why don't the people in charge of the budgets get out there in front of cameras yeah to me let me be really frank here they're cowards actually yeah they're cowards because they're sitting on the boat. Yeah, they're cowards. And I, I like, I'm going to be really brutal about this. I think that far too much responsibility is placed on players. I agree. To eradicate these problems. Let's use the analogy, you know, working conditions are suboptimal, right? Well, who's that on? 
who is that on? Who's providing the working conditions? Who's signing off all the checks? Who's financing the stadiums? Who's having new venues built? They're paid the money because they're elite level athletes. Yeah. And they're the best in their field. Right. They're also still employees. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's the, if you're going to treat football like a business, which is what unfortunately, they're social institutions that are treated like stock market businesses. Right. You've got employees. If this was an office, something would be done about it. So do something about it. Perfectly put. Should we wrap? Yeah, let's wrap. I mean, that's... You need a nap. <laughs> I don't, to be honest, I'm not even, weird enough, I'm not that tired because I got some good kipping just before the podcast. Mm. But yeah, this weekend was one for the ages. Unforgettable. One for four decades. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, playing out this week on Letter and Bulu, Mahali Lao. That's a tune. Anything else? Follow us on at Stadio on Instagram. No, at Stadio. Oh, I, don't, I did a Musa. <laughs> at, at Stadio on Twitter, at Stadio Football on Instagram. Obviously, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review. It really helps us grow the podcast. That's all good. Back next week. See you next week, people. <laughs>